Usually I start by asking people to pronounce their names correctly, but your name is quite easy for me to pronounce. So go ahead. Heather Jones. Such an American name. It's such an American name. It, it's so simple. Like it's just, there's no odd characters. There's no excessive amount of vowels or consonants. It's very straightforward. Well, thank you. I'm going to hope, I'm going to hope that it's easy to remember. I do have to say though, when I first moved to Sweden and I was coming through you know, passport control, someone asked me, so how do you pronounce this? And I was like, well, you know, it was this really, I felt exotic for the first time in my whole life. So you didn't get out much then, did you? Cause like, well, I mean, in, in Missouri, any girl in the eighties was named Heather basically. So like, I'm kind of ungoogleable in that way. Well, it is one of my favorite movies, actually. <laughs> I love that movie so much. Yeah. Christian Slater was at his peak right? in that movie. And so was Winona Ryder. Yeah, and scarily cool. accurate, the Heathers. Anyway. Yes, it absolutely was. But it was it's like the 90s version of what's now Karen. Yeah. And one minute and 17 seconds in, and we're so off topic already. 80s movies. Yeah. Let's go with it. But I, I, I'm, I, that's my era. I mean, you're younger than me, but that's my era. So I'm, I'm all for 80s movies. Wait, Heather's was an 80s movie? Was it not? It was. Was Shit. it? Should we Google it? Yeah, I am going to Google it. Heather's movie. <sighs> Holy shit, it was an 88. <laughs> wow. No, that makes sense. I graduated high school in 91, and I had already seen it before I graduated, so that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. <sighs> All right. Anyways. I often am interested in people's backgrounds. Now, your background is reasonably similar in many ways because you're an expat mm. to mine, but you came from Indiana. Is that correct? Yes, sort of. Uh, Indiana. I was born in Indiana, in Indianapolis, and I grew up on campus actually at IU in Bloomington. My father was getting his PhD, but when I was six, we moved to a really small town in southern Missouri called Nevada, spelled like Nevada pronounced Nevada. And that's where I grew up. So I, I was there all the way through high school. Well, Nevada likes to be called Nevada, I believe, not Nevada. There's a Nevada. weird Nevada. That's right. the other no. one. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. You got to watch yourself. So, so yeah. So that's where I grew up until I fled. <laughs> Intentionally? So you it's, fled? It's, it's, no, when I went to university. Okay, but like you fled far away. Well, I mean, I think anyone who grows up in like a tiny Midwestern town who's interested in art feels the need to sort of leave at some point. I'm going to just go out on a limb and say that's like a pretty common story in art school. Yes, I do recall meeting a lot of people from small towns in large metropolitan areas having fled their upbringing. Yeah. I was raised in Washington, D.C., so I didn't flee uh -huh, actually i fled you. to small town is what i did okay yeah I, I went and went to iowa actually is where i went goodness yeah we're all yeah. looking for something different probably at that stage of life yeah, yeah no i didn't well i got kicked out of a previous school and so then i ended up just taking any school i could, would accept me because i had been kicked out of not only the the school but the the city and the county Sounds like we story. need a lot more liquor for this conversation than I had anticipated. I, no, I, I already took my Xanax and caffeine <laughs> pill combination. That's how I get through these things. So, <sighs> yeah. 
Yes. I mean, you're welcome to drink. I've never had a guest. Oh, no, wait. I did have one guest who was had four martinis in oh, when they goodness. started the podcast. I think that actually that would be a podcast I would listen to every episode. Everybody gets drunk and talks about art. You heard it here first, folks. I've thought about doing it. The Drunk Art Podcast. Well, I was thinking more like a high art podcast than drunk. I mean, pick your poison. We don't have to be picky here. It's true. I mean, it would be interesting, but it's like, but like how, yeah, well. Like mushrooms versus whiskey could be interesting. Well, you do live in Sweden. I'm sure you can get like microdosing psilocybin up there and stuff, right? Possibly. Haven't looked into it. I think that everything is extremely regulated in Sweden. Hmm. You know, it's hard to get like band-aids, right? Without a prescription. So no, that's not I'm true. Sorry. I'm I'm exaggerating. But if you want to okay. get like triple antibiotic ointment cream for your cut or something, then you have to have a prescription. Got to get permission for everything. So, well, that's socialized medicine. Oh, that it's a little tricky, but it's free. So, I'm not going to yes. complain too much. I I will, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, I I'm currently living in the Czech Republic, and and they have this socialized medicine shit. And I love the theory of socialized medicine. Sure. It's a magnificent idea. If it only it worked. God, it's good. <laughs> Jeez, these people. I I had this trip to, I had literally, I shit you not, a scratch. Like just a scratch. Like no bigger than this scratch right mm -hmm. here on my arm. Like a scratch on my leg. Mm -hmm. I know nobody could see that size of that scratch. But we'll call it like half an inch. Like mm -hmm. tiny scratch. And I went to the doctor and, oh yeah, just put some ice on it. I'm like, oh, okay. So I go home. 24 hours later, it's it's black and inflamed and and horribly infected. I end up going to the the hospital. And the hospital makes me go back and forth to the hospital 12 days in a row to get injections of antibiotics in my butt. Huh. And then at the end of the uh, 12 days of getting injections, they then go, oh yeah, and here's a Z pack in case there's anything still left. Oh, like, why, why the fuck didn't you give me the Z pack in the first place mm. so that I didn't have to waste 12 days oh, coming out here? That sounds like it would have been much less fun. I was very annoyed by the end of it. But mm. anyways, okay, that's my issues. So you. Well, yeah. that's what we're here for. Let's talk about me some more. No. <laughs> so how do I mean, okay, I have to admit, I looked at you, it was like uh, stalking you a little bit as I do before sure. I do any guess. First thing that, of course, struck me was that you worked with Solowitz Studio. I did. Yeah. But how lucky Solowit was already dead. He had just passed away. Yeah. So, but his studio, I mean, his studio still exists now. Of so, course. So I, straight out of art school, I went to art school. I, well, I went to the art program at Truman State University in like mid-Missouri, Kirksville, which was great depending on what professor you had. So I had a couple of really, really supportive professors and a couple who, you know, maybe couldn't care less, but I had some really supportive teachers and I applied for just like a ton of internships, you know, free, like I'll work for free. I just need to get some experience. And I got a call from Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art in North Adams, Massachusetts, where I had applied to be an intern. But because I had already graduated, they were like, hey, you know what? We actually have this other position. Would you be interested? So they were hiring a small number of people to be master apprentices is, is the official title. But we worked for, I want to say, I would need to look, but I want to say it was six months 
at the museum full time with Solowitz Studio. So with the people that do his, had done his installations for a really long time. So we studied under them. But I was there, you know, five days a week, sometimes more hands-on doing all of his installations. I worked on the third floor doing a lot of the acrylic paintings. So I don't know if you know, but Mass Mocha has this huge wall drawing retrospective of Solowitz's work. And it's up, I think it was initially planned to be up for 25 years. And I think it's been extended. So it's kind of this elongated exhibition of all of his, or I shouldn't say all, but I want to say over a hundred of his wall drawings. And so I, I was able to work on those directly. And, and now I look back and I'm like, what, how did I get that job? Like I was completely unqualified and, and so, so lucky to work for his studio and for that museum, which is still probably my favorite museum in the world. That's saying a lot. But it is I'll saying a lot. Have you been there? I have not. I suggest that anybody who has any interest in art or exhibitions or old buildings to visit, or honestly, like small city revitalization with the arts. They've just, it's a fantastic museum. It's in an old factory building, or I should say an old factory complex, many different buildings. And they, because of the space, they're able to do things, do projects and show works that literally logistically cannot be shown anywhere else due to their size or their weight. So they have, you know, massive Ensel Kiefer pieces. When I was there, they had a Jenny Holzer exhibition in this gallery that was like the size of a football field. I'm not exaggerating. And it's just a completely immersive, inspirational space. And, you know, coming from a, a smaller, coming from a small town in Missouri and a small art program, working in that museum just exploded my mind to what artworks could be. Uh, when you say small art program, what, how many people are you talking about? I don't have a clue. I would have to look. But, you know, it wasn't an art school. It, it's not like, no, it's nothing you'd ever heard of. So it was just like an art program in a smaller university. Well, because I recently had this debate with somebody and they were like, oh, I went to a small school. Yada, yada. And I was like, no, no, no. I went to a fucking small school. I graduated literally with four people. At, from the university or from high school? College. From college. From the Corcoran School of Art. Oh, I know I graduated yeah. with four people. But the fact that you just said School of Art, like I didn't even have that. You know what I mean? So it was a university, and it wasn't, but it was an art program at Truman State University. Actually, I think the university has a really good reputation. I will say your university probably has better than mine because I have three degrees, and two of the d degrees I have are from schools that are now defunct. <laughs> Badge of honor. Yes. The Badge Corcoran is no longer the Corcoran. It's been swallowed up by George Washington University. Right. And San Francisco Art Institute just went under this past year. So that's my master's degree. Oh, shame. I actually didn't know that. I've been under my rock. Well, they didn't technically go under. They're still trying to save it. But at this exact moment, it is not financially viable. Shame. It is. It's a, it's a good school. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have nothing but good things to say about it, except for, okay, I have almost nothing but good things to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to get into defaming this one particular person. Mm -hmm. The person's there's a, not there. There's anymore. always one. They're not there anymore. It's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, they're, they're not even alive anymore, but I'm still not going to defame them. Sure. Good on you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had some great teachers there and I made a lot of 
strategic mistakes in my career, which actually maybe is something that you and I could sort of lament about. Uh, <laughs> the, yes, I have many. Yeah, well, my mis my biggest mistake that I realized is I thought in my youth and, and ignorance, I said, you know what I should do as an artist is I should travel as much as possible, see as much of the world, live in as many places as I can, embrace all these cultures and do all these different things. And that has been my biggest mistake I made because I never built a network. I never built a group of people or a tribe because I kept moving. Now, mind you, I, I moved 19 times since I graduated high school. So mm -hmm. I'm probably a bit excessive of that. I think I may have you beat there, actually. No I've shit. I've done the same. Mm -hmm. I've moved, I don't know. Yeah, probably at least two dozen times. Wow. So I understand. I understand what it means to like make connections and leave and make connections and leave. And there's a drawback to that, a huge drawback to that. And yet at the same time, I mean, I can't regret the knowledge that I gained and the people that I met and the expansion, especially, as I said, coming from this really small town. I think that was absolutely crucial to my education in the arts, but also to my development just as a human being. I do not regret any of my moves. They all led me to where I am now, which I enjoy. So I'm I'm not I'm not sitting here saying regret, but it did not do well for me in the process of trying to build a career because mm -hmm. I kept leaving. Like I would build a reputation, people would like me, they'd know me, they possibly exhibit my work, whatever, hire me for things. And then I would leave and have to start all over from scratch. And you've done the same thing where you moved from the United States to Norway and Sweden. And so how was that transition for you? Oh, my goodness. How far back should I go? Because it wasn't just that. Oh, I'll, so okay. I'll go I'll go. So back to the museum, right? So I studied. And you could just cut me off anytime. I'm probably going to forget something. But I studied. I got a bachelor's in fine arts. So not curating. So I focused on painting and printmaking, which dates me because you used to have to choose, you know, a concentration. You still do. Do you? I think in in for an emphasis, or, it depends on the school. Yeah. It does seem a little bit more open. You can choose conceptual art or free art or something like that. But sure. No, no, that's a European thing. Is that's it? Not an American thing. Oh, that's funny. I'm out of touch with the U.S. college. The US, well, well, like I, when I was in the U.S., it was the the newest thing was like interdisciplinary and right. new genre. Right, exactly. Uh, Installation. Course, yeah, but I mean, but you still have to pick a discipline. Even you know, a new genre is a discipline, sort of, because that's my right. Opinion. So there's kind of like a way to get around that. Yeah, but you can still be a painter, a BFA in painting or BFA. Or like I got a BFA with an emphasis in photography. Right, okay. Just meant I took three photography courses versus one. <laughs> right, so I have a BFA with a degree in painting and drawing and a bit of printmaking as well. So from there, I was hired basically right away, a couple of months into this program with the Solowitz Studio and Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. So I worked there. And from there, at the uh, convoluted story, at the same time, this ragtag, amazing group of people were doing installation in the museum in this in a different part of the building called the Rockaway Crew. That's what I call them, the Miss Rockaway. So basically, there's an artist named Swoon. Her real name is Caledonia Curry. And she is, 
how do I even explain her? I mean, she to, to call her a street artist is really not enough. She actually studied Renaissance painting, began making prints and pasting them up in the streets. Do you know her? You're nodding your head. I did my research. Right. So, so she's fantastic, phenomenal, still working. I encourage anyone who's listening to look her up. So she actually wasn't there, but all of these people she worked with, they were kind of a collective. I say kind of because it, it was not an official thing, but all of these artists and creators and musicians and what have you all worked together. And they had created years ago a flotilla, like a collection of handmade rafts that they floated down the Mississippi River doing performances and events. And so as one does, as one yeah. does, right? And and why wouldn't you? And so they came, they were invited to do an installation in the museum. So they were working at the same time that I was working with this other crew in a different part of the museum to do this installation of Solowitz wall drawings. And it was hysterical how completely different these two installations were. I mean, Solowit was absolutely precise. I mean, we were measuring the width of these lines and we had to water down the paint so that there were no streaks and it had to be watered down with Poland Spring filtered water so that it didn't affect the color and we're wearing white gloves and the whole nine yards, right? Because I mean, it's Sala Witt's work and he had just passed away. So everyone was just being extra, extra careful. Like this was kind of a legacy. Well, and the pieces were staying in for 25 exactly. years. I mean, I remember when we first started, we, you know, we had a whole crew of people and the walls had been, they had built internal walls. Now I'm getting off topic, but we, they had built these internal walls and painted them for us. But one of the, the project managers who had worked for Saul Lewitt for a long time, he decided that the walls were way too rough. So, and we, and we weren't allowed to sand them with like a mechanical, like a rotary sander because he was worried that, you know, it would be uneven and it would take everything down to the studs. So we all had to take sandpaper and just do this for, I swear to God, it was like two weeks of just She's standing. doing the wax on, yeah, wax, wax on, off, wax off. I mean, a whole crew of people just doing this, and we were like so sore and so exhausted. And we had like bleeding fingers because of the sandpaper. You do know the wax on, wax off um, motion is the same as an orbital sander, just to be clear. Yeah, but it, it's not a light enough touch. And so after I think it was like a week of doing this, Anthony, the project manager, came. Anthony Samsoda was his name, and he came and he said, "No." No, this isn't smooth. This feels like the the skin of a clementine. That's what he said. This feels like the skin of a clementine. I want it to feel like glass. Oh, I was waiting for eggshell. So then it was like more of that. So that's this installation on the one hand. And then on the other side of the museum, this Rockaway crew, as I refer to them, they were just like using scrap wood and hammering and just sticking whatever they wanted anywhere. There was like no plan at the beginning. And I remember going in there one day and they had this horrible bucket of paint that was just gray because everyone had just sort of mixed and like used old brushes. And it was just like this muddy, weird gray used to be white paint, I think, but also having a blast. And they would work 24 hours around the clock and they were blasting music and they were, everyone was filthy, I thought at the time. And so it was just like night and day. So I would work. I would often work in the daytime in Solowit, and then in the evenings, I would go hang out with them and work with them to sort of relieve my anxiety about doing anything wrong. You could just go in there and like do 
literally whatever you wanted. They would just be like, I don't know, do what you want. So, so that's how I, I met a lot of really amazing people that were working there. And they left, we stayed, you know, their installation, their process was shorter. And then when they left, I, I kept in touch with a few of them just over the weeks and months, I don't remember how long. And then I got a call that Swoon was actually looking for a studio manager, or, or rather I should say someone to manage, that's right, not a studio manager, someone to manage a project that she was working on in New York. And, and they recommended me. So the, from there, the whole process was super fast. She never met me. She hired me like on the spot in our first conversation over over the phone. And she was like, great, can you be there on Monday? And I'm like, no, I'm in a different state and I have a job. So then it was like, okay, can you be here on Thursday? So I basically just like left the installation for Solowit because that was ending and I didn't have a plan. So I left a few weeks early after speaking with them and with the museum's director, Joe Thompson, who is fantastic. And, and I moved to New York with like a duffel bag. And I'd never been to New York before, didn't have a clue. Thankfully, I do have a fantastic big sister who does have a clue who had just moved to the East Village a few months before me. So she sort of helped babysit me. I don't believe I've ever heard of anybody going, you know, I had this perfect plan in my move to New York. I, and I came with an entire U-Haul full of yeah. an entire household and I had furniture. I had a great apartment right from the beginning. So I have yes, all the New York stories. I had stories. this lovely view over right. Central Park. And it didn't yeah. smell bad at all. No. So, no yeah, rats, cockroaches, so <laughs> nothing. But it was, I mean, I, I miss New York. I sort of consider, as an adult, I sort of consider myself a New Yorker if one can. So I moved to New York. And I lived there and I worked there and this is becoming a very long story. So I'll try and speed it up. So I worked for her. I was There's then no hired speed it up. as her studio manager and I worked with her for about four years. That's a, that's a whole podcast there. All yeah, I was going to say, so like, wait, slow down one second because I often meet people that say studio manager or, oh yeah, I talk to my studio manager mm -hmm. or whatever. Guys, studio manager keeps being thrown around by various different people. What What is the role of a studio manager? Oh, goodness. I think that depends entirely on the artist. Okay. Right. As your task, for. working for Swoon, <laughs> what was your role as studio manager? I, like, did you buy the weed or like, did you like buy paint no. or like make arrangements? Like, what was the, the job? I did a little bit of everything. I don't know that she's the like... Well, Just to be clear, I have no idea if she smokes pot. She doesn't totally actually. A joke. She doesn't okay, smoke pot. Totally a joke. Go on. She, yeah, what did I do? I mean, first of all, it was, I'm like really, I'm rewinding in my mind trying to kind of remember, kind of. I'm trying to remember all of the Very things that I did. Very memorable huh? I mean, okay, my first meeting, like in-person meeting with her, because we'd spoken on the phone, you know, I get to New York. I drop my bags. I meet her at a cafe in a place that I didn't, I didn't even know how the subway worked. I didn't have a clue. And she gives me the download on this whole project. And it's like, there are five boats and we're building them out of trash. And then there's this huge gallery owned by Deitch in Long Island City. And I'm like, what? Who's Deitch and what's Long Island City? Don't have a clue. Don't know why she hired me to this day. I'm so thankful. And then she's like, but first, I want you to take a cab to Union Square and buy as many plants as you can for X amount of dollars and put them all in a cab and take them to the studio on the in the west side. Like that was the most important thing was to like buy a bunch of plants because she wanted to have a bunch of plants in the studio. So it was really random all of my tasks and over the course of time of my my job description if there ever was one morphed a great deal. But I think initially and of course 
her process and her flow of production would go up and down depending on what was happening. So different artists have hugely different processes, obviously, but hers was very project-based, at least at the time, was very project-based. So we would have like a huge project with tons and tons and tons of people. And then there would be like a bit of a lull and then there would be another huge project. So what was required of me was really different depending on where in this like wavy process we were. I picture a lot of like you as the studio manager being in charge of basically making sure that everything they need to be able to do their creative thing is there when they want it. Yeah, exactly. So there was a lot of trying to instill order. And also, you know, she had a whole team of fantastic people that were also helping actually produce the prints. And so making sure that they had everything that they needed, making sure that it was really clear to them what they needed to do when they showed up. So sort of being this in-between person. Also, I answered all of her emails and the ones that I couldn't answer. No, because she would get hundreds and hundreds. And honestly, I get that you're laughing, but if an artist who's trying to create something spends all of their time doing admin and answering emails, like they're never going to, yeah, so you need an assistant, he says as he points to himself. But they're they're never actually going to make anything, right? And so it's easy to be like, oh, this artist is really snobby. They're like having some intern answer their emails or something. But it's it's really key to, as a creative, to carve out time for you to actually create because that's your business. Like that's what you're actually doing. And, and I would compile a list of, I called it the somethings list. So it was like, here's all the stuff from your email this week that I cannot answer. Like you have to say yes or no or whatever. And so we'd have these meetings where I'd like sit down and we'd go through everything together. And so basically just creating efficient systems so that things moved more smoothly. Now that said, she very specifically told me like, I run on chaos. And so from the beginning, she's like, there will be like a little bit of push and pull. So like, I'll want to do things and you have to tell me that there's no budget for that, you know? And so we worked together, you know, and I think, Again, it depends on the artist, but being a studio manager is a really intimate position because I think, I guess I can't talk too much about other fields, but usually for artists, like there isn't a clear separation between their art and their life. So it, sometimes I would be like running into her apartment to try and find her passport because she forgot it. She's at the airport or what have you. Really? People do that. I've never forgotten my passport, knock on wood, that I hope that will never happen again. But I mean, there were I could regale you with stories, but... No need to smack talk anybody. No, 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 no. I don't smack talk her. I have a huge amount of respect okay, for great. her. Huge amount of respect. And I'm so grateful because without that random job offer, which I was completely unqualified for, I don't know, you know what I would have done. You're making me feel very sad because I had a job offer like that in New York that I turned down or more to the point, they told me not to show up because I couldn't be there on a particular day. I said, I can't be there on Monday, but I can be there on Tuesday. Yeah. And they said, if you're not here on Monday, we don't want you. Well, then you shouldn't feel sad because it doesn't sound like the kind of person anyone wants to work for. It was Richard Avedon. There you go. But no, Callie, Caledonia Curry is her name. She's just fantastic. Not necessarily easy all the time. Of course, but I have so many good memories and so much respect. And that's really with Saul Witt and then with her and my time at her studio, that's really where I feel like I cut my teeth and started to understand the contours of the art world and just meet artists and go to studios and go to galleries and understand how these processes work 
And she placed a great amount of trust in me for no good reason. So I'm like eternally, eternally grateful to her for that. We all try to do that. We all hope for the best from everybody we know. It's it's always the people that end up letting us down that then sort of burn us and make us jaded and bitter. Yeah, well, that's the fight, isn't it? To not be jaded and bitter. Hope, hope springs eternal. It is. Like, I, mean, I, I waffle on it. There are days when I'm jaded and bitter, and there are days when I'm like, fuck you all, I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think I'm eternally hopeful. I consider myself a pessimistic optimist. Okay, that sounds exhausting. It is because I, you know, I basically, I, 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 I plan for the worst, but hope for the best. Yes. I've heard that before. I don't know. I just try and like everyone until I don't. And it's worked so far. It's an admirable way to be. And I tried to do the same thing, but yeah, I'm not very good at it. Yeah. I, I'm one of those, like, like, I don't know what you'd call it. Like vibe, like, like instant sort of like the, you can react immediately to somebody like, Oh, not going to like them. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and yet, and I agree with that because sometimes the, that's, that's very true, but it's amazing what happens if you decide to like somebody, they become extremely much more likable. So often I just decide, I'm like, I'm going to like you as long as I possibly can. And then if I can't, then you, I know that I've tried, you know? The worst is when somebody else comes up to you and goes, oh, you're going to love this person. Like, I it almost never have I loved anybody that somebody says, you're going to love this person. It's like I also don't read books that people go, I was just oh, say you're going to love, love this movie. book. Yeah, no. Like, I never, I've never liked a single book that anybody has recommended to me, ever. Yet I will wander through a bookstore for hours and just pick up random things that mean nothing to me whatsoever. And I will you know, engross myself in it for months. Mm. I know yeah, I hate uh, so many people have recommended Paul Coelho to me and I, the alchemist, no, I don't, I feel like there, I must be sending out some wrong vibes. If everybody thinks that I'm going to love this author, maybe we should edit this part out because I don't want to smack talk anyone, but it's sort of like fake pseudo poetic philosophy oh no i'm so leaving that in i don't even know who this person is huge sensation i feel like never mind i'm gonna okay, stop. if somebody is referred to as a sensation yeah. i'm perfectly fine with some smack talk i'm gonna i'm gonna stop <laughs> stop talking right now so should i keep going on my on my international journey or is that enough we only got to new york should i do it's okay wait i have okay let me ask a, um let me ask a couple questions within what you have already oh, uh, shared okay no, no, they're not that horrible. The like uh, Salawit and slash and his studio, since you did, obviously did not work directly with him, mm -hmm. what was something that you experienced like that was surprising? That's an easy one. That's an easy one. There was a moment where I mean, I'm sure that there are a lot of surprising things, but there was this moment where this wonderful guy named John Hogan, who'd worked for Salawit for years and years, dog years, we were. It was towards the end, and he was sealing these wall drawings, a lot of these wall drawings, so that they stayed and they don't get smudged and whatever. And he was sealing them. And I mean, this is Solowit, right? Like, these are artworks that I saw in the books, you know, in, in, in art school. And, and everyone was like, these are amazing. And people were like, ooing and awing and sighing over these artworks. And, and they were really, really cool. They are cool. But he, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, he was sealing this artwork. And there was this one he was working on. He was like, I fucking hate this one. This one is so ugly. And I told Saul 10 years ago that we should never fucking do this again. And here I am, you know, and he was just bitching about this 
painting. I don't remember which specific one it was. And that was huge for me to, to realize it doesn't matter how famous an artist is. You can actually have your own opinion and you can decide that you don't like it, even though all the history books say it's fantastic. And that was massively important for me as a young person just getting started in the art world. And I, I really credit that moment and John Hogan, who taught me art criticism, basically. Like that was my interest in like, oh, you can actually have an opinion about art. I really think that that's where it started for me. Because until then I was like, oh, I'm just some like podunk person from Missouri. If, if I didn't understand something or if I didn't like an artwork, I assumed that it was just because I wasn't smart enough to, under, to get it. And so to see this guy who knew Saul LeWitt back and forth and had actually installed his work for years, talking about how he didn't like something was really meaningful for me. That's good. That's a good story. I like it. Yeah, the ends. Yeah, I don't really have any like further questions for that. Yeah. That's pretty pretty succinct. But we could step forward saying, yeah. and that now has led you on to being a critic. Apparently, I don't know if I'm a critic. I'm an art writer. I'm a uh, hope to be. I don't know. Even that sounds weird. Anything that I say that's professional sounds weird. It's true. Luckily, I have like titles that have been handed to me, like professor. Oh. That's fancy. Thank you. I recently received that one. Well done, you. Congratulations. Was an associate professor for like four years. Finally got full professorship. So that's very nice. Good job. Congrats. That's huge. Thank you. 47 years old and I made it to full <laughs> professorship. No, I, I think that's young. I think it's good. <laughs> I picture full professors over the age of 50, possibly even over the age of 60. Will you so wear like tweed? I hope you wear tweed. I do not own tweed, no. Okay. Well, I just feel like when I hear professor, I think like tweed jackets with those little leather elbow patches. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Very traditional, yeah. I mean, if I was in Oxford or something, I absolutely would be wearing that, mm -hmm. yeah. No, I didn't wear anything particular. Yeah, having titles is interesting. So like, so now you, okay, yeah. Can, why don't you go ahead and continue with your oh, travels gosh. Log. I'll try and make it, this is going to be all, I'll try and make it not boring. I worked in New York. I wanted to change things up. I studied printmaking at Michaelis Art School in, in South Africa, in Cape Town. So I lived there for a bit. Wait, what? Hold on. Slow down. How did you get from New York to South Africa? On an airplane. Why did you go from New York to South Africa? I wanted to, I mean, I'd been doing so much, you know, admin and managing, and I wanted to make artwork again. I wanted to study again. I applied to several programs and got into a handful of them. And, but I, I wanted to, I, the programs I applied for were very specifically, in my mind at least, off the, the beaten path. Like I didn't want to go to London or Paris. So I applied to South Africa, to Cape Town. And I wanted to get outside of my context. I wanted, I, also there was a professor named Fritha Langerman, who was a fantastic artist and printmaker, and she was teaching there at the time. So I applied to her program. Yeah, so I just did it and I just. Okay, fair enough. So on to South Africa and then. And then from South Africa, back to New York. Also, I should just mention here, we're, this is a podcast about art, so I'm talking about art. But to give people like a, a real, sometimes to give people a real honest look at the art world, I think it's worth mentioning all of the random odd jobs I was doing at the time to make rent, right? Like working at the farmer's market, working for the NFL, working, doing some transcript, you know, all of the stuff. Because I think when people hear these podcasts and then they're doing all the, their waitressing or whatever, then they think like, oh, I'm not doing it right. I'm a failure. When in fact, everybody that I've ever known in the art world has also has like 
a ridiculous grab bag of weird jobs they've done for money, right? My favorite job was being a roadie. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I did for years. I So I would go on tour Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then I would come back and work Monday through Wednesday. Right. On my art or my studies. I was in school at the time. So yeah. I scheduled all my classes Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday so that I could go to, on tour over the weekend and then come back and do schoolwork. Yeah. That's real life in the art world. And not a lot of people talk about that. So, and honestly, honest to God, waitressing is the best job I've ever had in terms of preparing me for working in the art world. You got to deal with all different kinds of people. You got to do quick math. You've got to, you know, you've got to hustle while still being pleasant. You learn all of these skills while waitressing. I'm not saying that it was like that I enjoyed myself all the time, but, and I'm not wrong. Other people agree with me, like working in restaurants will deal. I mean, imagine dealing with like funders that are a real pain in the ass or like artists that think that everything you do is wrong. Funders can be a pain. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm going to get started there. So anyway, shocking. So anyway, I studied in South Africa, came back to New York, worked a bunch of odd jobs, including some stuff in the arts. I feel like I'm missing something. I worked as a, as a, a clientele specialist uh-huh. in Banana Republic. Oh my goodness. Doing, in the women's department. <laughs> and it was magnificent. And it was a hot, very good education. The, the thing I most took away from it is A, it can take up to 15 pairs of jeans to find the right pair of jeans, yeah. depending on the shape and form of a person's body. Mm-hmm very important. Mm -hmm. Um, but mostly it was that a lot of the bitches that I worked with were a bunch of snobs. Mm -hmm. And like, so they would look at people when they walked in and literally do the like shoes and handbag kind of like attitude. And they would not even say like, hello to these people. So I got in the habit of saying hello to all the people that didn't have nice shoes and handbags. And I ended up being the top salesperson in the entire corporation of Banana Republic worldwide Mm -hmm. because I was willing to talk to anybody. Yeah. Because you're a normal person a nor a nice human being yeah it's surprising how rare that can be well i well, i give everybody the benefit of the doubt until they prove me wrong that's not what you said earlier you said that you were bitter and jaded and pessimistically optimistic i don't understand how any of those are contradictory all right fine we'll go with it i am no i'm a pessimist i i believe people will prove me wrong but i will give them benefit <laughs> we'll of give them a chance that's I true. will always give everybody a chance with the full expectation that sooner or later they will prove me wrong. Fair enough. <laughs> but Fair until enough. that time, I will give them the benefit yeah. of the doubt. Yeah, well done. I feel like I just defended myself. No, I'm but just, I'm totally messing defended. with you. Okay. I don't feel like I defended myself very well. I think you did but... admirably. Okay. I'm really So it worked. Yes, it so worked. So it worked. It okay, worked. Good. I'm story I'm sticking to. Yeah. All right. So. South Africa, moving on. So, so back in New York, doing a bunch of odd jobs, some of which involved art, some of which didn't. And then what happened? And then I moved to Stockholm. And I went to school. This is, I'm making it sound better than it was. I followed a guy to Stockholm. I, I had a, you know, I had a travel, like a three-month thing, a, a travel visa. Like I didn't have... I didn't have a plan. I think I had like 600 bucks, which was a lot for me at the time. Like, you know. I'm sorry. Do do you ever have a plan? It seems like uh, there's lots of not planning. Well, and. I mean that in the nicest way possible. Yeah, no, and I'm legitimately thinking about it. At that time in my life, not really. Okay. 
you know, this is like I'm in my 20s and I'm like following art and love and, you know, all that. Yeah, no need for a plan in your 20s. Yeah, exactly. So I go to Stockholm. We're like sleeping in a studio for a while. Get it up. It's possible to get an apartment in Stockholm. We figure that one out. And I got kicked out because of my visa. So then I was in Istanbul just because it was like a place to go that wasn't in the EU. So I was living in Istanbul. I like worked in a hostel and I like went to the embassy every day asking, like bothering them basically until they gave me a visa back in New York for a second to like get all my stuff together. And I went back to Stockholm and somewhere in that whirlwind, I managed to apply to a master's program at Stockholm University in curating. I hope you were also getting like frequent flyer miles as well. <laughs> I, I did, in fact, sign up for a card. I was flying. I mean, there were some days where I like flew from Istanbul to Stockholm for like 15 hours and then like back to the airport, back to New York, two days in New York, back to, you know, it was a little bit ridiculous. So, so yeah, so but I lived in you're Stockholm. You're in your 20s. That's the, like, that's to me, the life. that's the life. That's Absolutely. totally the life. It would have been more the life if I weren't completely broke, but. Agreed. Yeah. Yes, I know. I would like I later in my life I, I went to work in Abu Dhabi mm -hmm. and so they paid me really fucking well. And so it was great fun to have that same lifestyle of jet setting around all wherever I wanted in five star hotels, in business class, everything. It is much nicer. Yeah, sure. it's it's like, oh, this is why people do what they do. But to be honest, not as memorable. Like I remember the absurd, stupid, like, oh my God, I can't believe I got through security with all that crap kind yeah. of things. And I can't believe I lugged around five of these suitcases kind of. Oh, thing, you and I are very scary. different. So I pared down my life to like one little leather satchel. Oh no, I'm, just, like, I'm a stuff around. person. Yeah, no, like we're different stuff. in that way. But yeah, so I ended up, long story, trying to be short. I lived in Stockholm for a little over two years and I got a master's degree in curatorial studies. It was a very long title, in fact, International Masters in Curatorial Studies, including law, which was really interesting. I know I see you with, with furrowed brow, but basically we had a whole section on, on law and contract law, which has been invaluable in the years since. And then I also studied simultaneously for a year at the Royal Academy in Stockholm in architectural history and theory, because my master's thesis was touching on exhibitions and architecture. So yeah, so that was that. After that, I moved back to New York and I was like, Sweden is cold and dark and people are weird and hard to get to know. So I'm done. And I moved back to New York and I started working. Actually, I left the program early. This is also a theme. I left the program a little bit early. I got a job offer in New York. So I was the exhibitions manager at Independent Curators International in New York. But I finished my thesis from New York. Okay, but hold, hold on a second. I really hate it when people say this. I got a job offer. I got no, a job no, offer. No. You applied for a job. No. No, I didn't. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, somebody just like out of the, the out of the, everybody in the whole goddamn world, they were like, you know who I really want? Exactly. I want Miss Jones. No. I, Call Miss Jones. Yeah, preach. Who doesn't want Miss Jones? That's also what happened with Swoon. I just like got this call and was like, hey, do you want this job? So I do feel really, really grateful. But uh, what I had interned as part of the program, the curatorial program, you had to intern. So I interned in several different places. And then this job opened up and they knew I was coming back. They knew I wanted to come back. They already knew me. I already knew the systems. So basically they offered, I, I did have to apply, but they asked me if I was interested 
in a Well, that is the theory of an internship. The hope of any given internship is that basically you get so ingrained and become so important in that whatever field mm-hmm. that they suddenly are like, oh, well, let's just hire them. Right. Or, I mean, I would hope also that the goal of an internship, at least for the interns, would also be to learn the industry in general. So even if you're not like a shoe-in into that specific company or organization. Yeah, I'm, this is my uh, take from internships in the United States. I want to stress that as well. My take is what I learned was everything I don't want to do. Like I, I did all kinds of stupid, fucked up jobs that I was just like, oh, that's something I never want to do again in my life, nor do I want to do it for my career. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned lots and lots of what I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. However, I was really difficult for me to find that thing of what I do want to do. Yeah, I think... I'm either ambitious or scattered, depending on your view of things. But I, rather than doing one, right? So rather than doing one internship, I did, I think I did three, maybe four. That was crazy and busy. But also, I, I also realized like from that where I wanted to be in the art world. And of course, that's a process that's always being refined based on my life and my interests. But you know, you go to art school or you go to curatorial school and you think like, I want to work at MoMA or I want to work at the Met. You know, you have these big names because we have a hierarchy of what we consider the best, right? And then what I realized, and also in speaking with my friends and colleagues and fellow students, that I, I didn't actually, like, I don't want to work at the Guggenheim. In fact, the Guggenheim is notoriously difficult. Maybe you should cut that part out too. Nope. <laughs> these Those are the nope. best bits. There's... <laughs> So staying. But wait, I should say notoriously difficult maybe 10 years ago. Maybe things have changed. But I had some I had um, some friends. Well, oh wait, I'm, wait, hold on. Let me think about this. How could you you, you could say um you have heard that it's notorious. I have heard I have not worked there. You're right. So that's right. Not, that's, so it's not firsthand it's experience. Not firsthand. It's it's you have been you are you you are aware. No, that's that's too factual. Yeah. What, what would be <laughs> basically rumor rumor on the street yeah, has it rumor on the street that's right rumor the on the street thing, yeah. has it but but even some really fantastic museums and organizations that people i know have worked at or i have worked at directly you know you're often at a larger organization you're you're stuck doing like a very specific role like you're just doing loan forms right or you're just doing the archive and that kind of singular focus is not my wheelhouse. So I realized very quickly that when I work with smaller galleries or organizations, nonprofits, etc., I was able to do a lot of different tasks and be more creative and solve problems in that way. And that was far more interesting to me. And also I was a lot better at it. So finding your niche and finding the way that you want to work based on, on who you are and what you need and what you like and what your strengths are versus what the art world tells you is the best, right? Mm. I think that that was a really important part of the internship process for me. And it still is, of course. It's still something that I think about. Absolutely, yeah. When I did, I didn't, that makes me think of an internship that I did, which was at the National Geographic. Mm -hmm. And they made me, I had to, the new publication would come out and I had to take the images that were published and go through the tens of thousands of slides from that one article so like ten thousand individual images and find all the images that were almost the image that was published but not the image of post because the image that was published is already copyrighted and it's already Mm -hmm. in national geographic so that they could sell the rights through stock 
imagery mm-hmm. to these seconds, you know, these close to, but not the same right. kind of images uh, for six months. Yeah. That's, and that's all I did. Right. And that's your whole job. And, and, and I think it's very job. similar at, at large museums, you know, because they have specialists. And I, un- I, I do understand when you're dealing with a certain level of artwork and archive, you do want specialists who know what they're doing, who are very specific. However, I bored to tears. That's not why I'm on the planet. So I think that was really important for me to figure out pretty early on. Well, it's funny because, like, I as a teacher, I often roll in and I, and I'm a little disappointed with the current academic structures because I feel like I'm making a lot of generalists mm-hmm. and not a lot of specialists, and and that sort of saddens me. I mean, I love a good generalist in the new genre, interdisciplinary kind of way, but you do kind of have to be somewhat specialized. And I guess maybe that's just the thing that happens after school. Like yeah. you, you find the specialization after you're done with your schooling, but schooling, I guess, should be kind of general. I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion about any of that sort of thing. I think it's really different for everybody. And that's boring and trite to say, but I think in general, <laughs> you didn't ask me, but if somebody were to ask me for advice, I would worry a lot less about what I were I was supposed to do in order to be successful and do the thing that I feel like I need to do in terms of as a, you know as a person or as an artist as a creator. I agree with that on a philosophical level. Mm-hmm. However, we all still need to make incomes. Sure, hence so the like, waitressing. Yeah, I know, but it's like <laughs> And that's really great into in your twenties, maybe until you get married or mm-hmm. until you're well thirties. Yeah, because <laughs> then you're suddenly like, oh, I want a house right. or I want a healthcare or I want whatever kind of things. Like, and you start being like, cause as I said, I'm 47 now, and I'm just like, yeah, I can't do that anymore. Yeah, like, you got to have some regular whatever kind of thing. However, I think that that by following. I'm going to sound like such a hippie, but by following your gut. I was just going to say, I was a bit of a hypocrite by what I just said. <laughs> Cause like, I'm like, yes, I need a regular this. I only have four part-time jobs right, right now, but they're all very regular <laughs> part-time jobs. But I would, I mean, I think only by following your gut instinct and following your, your true legitimate interests, will you find that regular job or that reputation for yourself because i think especially as you go on in your career if you're just doing whatever and saying whatever because you need to get a job uh, people are going to know that but if you specialize in something and you're like this is what i love this is what i'm good at this is my real interest and you follow that i think that's going to show and maybe it feels like you're doing the wrong thing because you don't have a consistent job but i do think at a certain point that that will click together and become a career and you will have someone with a really strong reputation. Yeah. yeah. My dad used to say like, um, you know, do what you love and the career will follow it. Yeah, basically. And, but then they also should say like, and you got to get a part-time job so you don't starve. Like there's always a caveat, right? So I don't want to be overly romantic as someone who's done like every odd job in the book. And that part-time shot job should not be drug dealer or selling your body. I mean, you know what? I know people who have done both of those things in the art world. I (laughs) I have done the drug. Well, I was never a drug dealer. I was a drug courier, if you want to get technical. But, you know, whatever. 
Like I, I had a buddy of mine. Oh my God. I just, I just remember this. This buddy of mine, I won't say his name in high school who he didn't have a U.S. passport. He was French and he used to drive cars. He would drive a car one way from New Jersey to Washington, D.C. And that's it. Like they would, they would fly him up New Jersey, get in a car and drive down. Yeah. He had no idea. And he's like, he's like, one day I was driving and the, like the panel of the door came off and he was like, there was drugs. The whole car was just like loaded down with drugs. And he was just driving. He was just like, I didn't want to know. And that's not care. my problem. Right. Nope. <laughs> right. I mean, obviously I don't think anyone should ever do anything that conflicts with their ethics, but I just want to be very honest that yeah, the art working in the art world is full of odd jobs and risk and, and patching it together and cobbling it together. Until a certain point, we hope. Like, well, that's the thing is, like, we all want that beautiful, ideal, whatever. Like, I mean, okay, like, you're an independent, quote unquote, curator. And I always have this opinion, which I, I ask every curi independent curator I talk to. I believe, and I, please tell me if I'm wrong, because I probably am, that an independent curator is basically somebody who just hasn't gotten offered a position at a nice full time job. And, for, you know, so they're doing independent to build their reputation, make their connections, do whatever they need to do to get to the good, stable institutional position. Mm. I don't think that's true necessarily. I think it does make the fact that you don't have a job sound better. So that's certainly true. But I also, I mean, I think that there are curators who work outside of an institutional system and that's their practice so there are you know they might curate an exhibition at a gallery they might curate an exhibition at a show they might be they might have a grant for pursuing their own research they might be writing a book so there are a lot of things that that so it is kind of a catch-all term but there are a lot of things that that can mean other than i don't have a job I never associated independent curator with not having a job that would not have been what i said but or you mean like not having been offered a full-time position yeah, yeah, just basically not attained that level of their career status yet. Right, but I don't think so. Okay. I think that generalization could be made, right? Because oftentimes an independent curator is like a younger person and, you know, maybe it pays less. There's certainly more risk because you have to kind of cobble projects together. So as you mentioned, right, as you get older, you have a family, you have a house payment, like maybe you actively start looking for these more institutional jobs for practical reasons. But I think in terms of the practice of curating, there are quite a few people who choose to work in that way. And in fact, I know several people who have turned down like cushy full-time jobs in Scandinavia because their interest and their research points them in another direction. So yes and no. All right. Which brings us to the journal. Is, yeah. is that Contemporary Art Stavanger? Stavanger. Stavanger. So, yes, yeah, so I was working in New York and then I got, I was there for two years at Independent Curators International, fantastic organization at the time directed by Renaud Proche, who, by the way, agrees with me about waitressing as being the most important training to work in the arts. From there, I was offered a job, sorry, again, offered a job in, in Norway at Kunsthaussevanger with Hallamu Guest. You should buy a lottery ticket. I should buy, I know that. I should buy a lottery ticket. I have bad luck in other in other places. But honestly, I'm making it I'm making it sound easy. But all yes, of you are. But no, but all of this was because I hustled my ass off constantly. So the reason that I was offered this position is because I worked with Hanna, this amazing curator, Hanna Mugas, 
when she was starting Kunstel Savanger as, as an intern, totally for free, like sweat labor. And then when she actually was able to build up the funding for the organization to hire somebody, she asked me if I was interested. And that's, you, you know, you can call it nepotism, you could call it a popularity contest. But the simple fact is the art world runs so much on relationships. It just is a fact. I am great with the curator, collector, institutional sort of part of that all being like, you know, hiring friends and all this kind of stuff. I'm great with that. That's perfectly fine. Like, cause, you know, if I had a business, I would do the same thing. It, the problem that I have is when it comes to like, when there are people who have strong merit and they're overlooked or not given the their opportunity yeah. because somebody hires a friend instead right or or a art gallery hires somebody they you know start picks up some artist they like as a person versus the person who actually has sure. quality merit work yeah like that's what bothers me um, so like, I don't, I have no problem with it because I've been the recipient of many of those kinds of jobs as well. So I'm not knocking the higher friends kind of relationships, right. but I am questioning it when it comes to merit. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I would say too, there, there is a difference between friends versus, I mean, this was not a friend of mine, but rather someone that you've worked with before. You know, professionalist, right, a colleague, yes. someone who, you know, that they colleague. have the chops, right colleague it sounds it makes me sound like an adult right but if there if there's somebody that you know has the chops right like has the knowledge has the experience and also that you know you can work with and i think that's key and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's like dirty or nasty but finding somebody that you can work with and that you trust is actually really difficult and so i do understand like if you have a job opening and you had an intern 2 years ago who is fantastic to work with that you might just go directly and ask that person. To me, that's merit, though. Sure. That's they—they they proved themselves. Right. They are of good quality, come from good stock, whatever kind of thing. So, like, that's merit. I have no problem with that. It's just the uh, yeah. A lot of the arts world is cult of personality right. and friends, and just you know, and even investors like collectors who then go to museums and say, "Hey, we should have an exhibition of this person that I'm collecting a lot of." Right, so and the I have value a, of my collection like suddenly will go up. Right, absolutely. I mean, but that's I. I don't want to sound like I'm defending that because I don't. But that kind of bullshit is true in every industry. I don't care. I chose the arts <laughs> industry. That's all I care about. Sure, it's true. Yeah, yeah. I I don't give a shit if Starbucks does that. I mean, because to me that's just obvious right. that they do that. Yeah. But we we somehow like associate like the arts as being above that, those kinds of things in our mind and our romantic ideas of the right. arts world. It's not, and it never has been. I know. Sorry. Kind of busted my bubble. Sorry, but it but that's a complete fallacy. You know. The idea of the tortured genius artist alone in their room and the idea of like art being above commerce in some way, that's so new. And that's really never been the case. The end. That's what I think. <laughs> I feel like you just horribly yucked my yum. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's true. But here's the thing. I'm not saying that that's a good thing or that I like it. I mean, I'm fairly radically political. I don't want to live in this like capitalist economy that commercializes all creativity. But I do think in order to work in, and this is true outside of the art world as well, in order to 
work and move in this world in the way that you want to and in a way that feels in line with your ethics, you have to at least open your eyes and admit to what the world is. Because if you're like, I don't want it to be that way, well, then you're just treading water. But like, this is the world as it is. This is the art world as it is. Recognize it and then try to function in the way that feels right to you with that knowledge. Because otherwise, you're just flailing around, I think. Yeah, don't get me wrong. If somebody came to me and said, hey, I'll give you a million dollars to do this exhibition of this work that you don't believe in, I probably would do it. I mean, come on. Who wouldn't? Yeah. I mean, there, me, there's I a hope. certain amount of me i hope yeah I, you know i mean i would hope i wouldn't i would hope my ethics and or morals and i'm not sure which is which is the right thing on that particular one because i always get ethics and morals mixed up but i would hope that i would uh, stand my ground and be like no 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 i have to stay true to my whatever but i mean the honest truth is, is yeah i got a house payment yeah <laughs> like, that's a fine bills to pay and it's really tough i mean don't get me wrong nobody's coming to me offering me that kind of money for some great exhibition <laughs> but it's just sort of the idea that like you know, there's the issue of like selling out people say oh you sold out because you did this and i'm like no sometimes you just got to make a living like i i know i'm my background is photography and i know plenty of photographers who are amazing and on the side quietly they do advertising or you know like fashion campaigns or other things that have nothing to do with their work that have nothing to do with their reputation and probably would damage their reputation mm -hmm. if people knew that they did these things, but they pay the bills. Yeah. I do think that in my own career, I think that the biggest mark of success is reaching a point where you're actually able to say no to a job because it's not, I love that position. Yeah. It's, I it's very satisfying. To say a respectful no, because you actually don't need the money and it's not really the right job for you. I got to do that last year. I was teaching at a school and they and they came to me and they said, um, we're not going to be having you come back next year uh, because the students didn't enjoy your class. And I was like, I'm sorry, I, did, I was unaware that academia was based on enjoyment of a class. And they're like, well, the, the, we need students to have fun. And I was like, again, I, I believe if your if your criteria of a good education is to have fun, that we're not a good match. So I see no need to continue this. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, academia. Hmm. Anyways. Moving on. Yeah, but you asked still me. Still trying to get to. Oh, I asked you something. Yeah, you did. You asked me about Stavanger. Yes. So I moved there. But before that, whilst I was still in New York, as I mentioned, Han Namugas had, had started Kunstel Stavanger, had actually transformed this old Kunstverening, right? Like a membership organization that was almost defunct into a contemporary art Kunstel. And she's still there and she's done just a fantastic job. But she and Ger Haraldseth, who was also the curator of Rogelan Kunstcenter, in Stavanger, a really interesting thing happened where three new directors came sort of within a year or two of each other to th into the three main art institutions in the city. And so all of a sudden, along with some fantastic artists and artist-run spaces, there was kind of a new rebirth of the art scene in that region. And so they didn't, but there was nothing, there was no like art newspaper, there was no art critic or very little art criticism in the local paper. There was no place, single place you could go to find out about what was happening. So together we created Contemporary Stavanger as this very informal blog, to be quite honest with you, 
and we didn't really know what we were doing. It was myself and Marta Danielson Yolbo who since moved to Oslo and moved on. But we co-founded this together and then very quickly realized like it just kind of took off in its own direction. And we realized there was this huge vacuum, this need for art writing in the region. And so we worked on that basically for free on and off. Sometimes we'd get a little bit of money applying for grants, etc. We became an independent organization so that we weren't under the umbrella of any institution, because of course that starts to get tricky in terms of writing reviews and such. And then we brought on Astrid Helen Windingstad, who is now our Dogli Leder, like the daily manager, and Mike and Winum. So now we're three, and Marta left, and she's now working in Oslo, still fantastic. Left on very, very good terms. She just had a new position. So that is still, that's been over six years now. That's been going, and it's been growing so fast. And I'm, it's, I'm very, very proud of it. I could talk for a long time, so I'll, I'll stop. But I will just say it's laughable to look at the articles that we wrote at the very beginning based on what we're doing now. Yeah, I used to do art criticism and, and I enjoyed it in many ways, but it was, it's so poorly paid, like it just didn't pay a lot of money. Mm. It, I mean, I could have done anything else and made more money than doing that, but that that's a different side note. But I enjoyed doing art criticism, but the problem is, is a lot of other people like not it's funny other people in the arts didn't appreciate it but people not in the arts world appreciated the insight into what's going mm. on in the art world kind of thing but i still had people that hated me for some articles that i wrote like to this day i mean and when i say to this day i mean we're going on 20 years yeah. now that i still have people that hate me because i didn't write a flattering thing sure. because to a certain extent, the thing that I find is difficult about criticism in this day and age is the fact that almost every outlet is based on only having the opportunity to like something, but there is no opportunity to dislike anything, mm -hmm. i.e. Facebook, Instagram, all that. There's all, there, there's not even the opportunity to say, meh, like meh, not, not positive, not negative, just like mid, like it's either like or nothing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's translated a lot. Like almost like when I read criticism these days, now mind you, I don't read enough. I should read more. But when I write, because it's generally, if they've gone through the trouble to write an article, it's generally positive. Mm -hmm. So you rarely hear anything that's actually critical. Yeah. I think we need to think about the term criticism. So first of all, I don't disagree with you. But in terms of Okay, wait, hold on one second. You're a writer. You not disagreeing is agreeing. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, just to be clear. Ish. I don't. I don't disagree with what you are saying, and yet I think there's more nuance. There is always much more nuance. I'm just doing that because I live in the Czech Republic, where they do the double, the double negatives negative, as yeah. positive. So I'm just clarifying that it is um, you are saying a positive, not a double negative. Right. So I, okay. and yet I will say it again. I do not disagree, and if allowed to finish, I think that there's more nuance, and the term critical is something that I think about quite a bit, actually, because on the one hand, in normal usage, we think of it as a negative thing. Like you're being critical in terms of you're being negative towards something, right? You have a negative opinion, but in terms of critical thinking, it has a different connotation, right? And so when I write about artwork 
and and honestly the favorite my favorite articles that I read about artwork are less good or bad you know thumbs up or thumbs down and more let's think critically about what this is like what's happening what is the artist doing where are they coming from what's being said and then the second really key thing I just want to say right now so I don't forget is how do I phrase this there's an idea that the art critic or the writer I usually use the term art writer because it kind of I takes that word critic out of it but that they are somehow like coming with to an artwork or to an exhibition with a blank slate right and of course it's bullshit and so to me it's really helpful for me when I know who the writer is and when they even say in the article like as a cis white female coming to this exhibition like this is how I'm reading it whereas a critic or a writer with a different background and a different perspective might have a completely different relationship to the artwork right and so so that when I think about a critique or criticism or critical like I try and think of it more in terms of critical thinking and not as you know, I'm a single omnipotent or omniscient, what's the difference? Power figure who can say whether something is good or something is bad. And there's like one opinion, and that's what's tricky. This is something that I wish there were more of. You often see there's an exhibition and then there's, a, a you know, an article, a review of this exhibition. And what I like to do, and I wish this were like an app, that someone could create is to read like five to 10 reviews of the same exhibition written by different people. Right. Well, and that's like when I did my art criticism, I agreed to do it only with uh, a partner. Right. So I actually had a writing partner and we literally would take like, we would only review an exhibition that one of us enjoyed and one of us did not. That's really and, interesting. And we would play off of each other kind of mm -hmm. like we each wrote our own reviews and then we simply put it together into a single yeah uh article yeah and i think i mean i think that that's a really interesting format but even just the i'm not trying to mince words or be annoying but even just the terms i liked it or i didn't like it of course i am a person and there are things that i like and things that i don't but to approach an exhibition and think about like what is happening here whether i like it or not is sort of i'm not gonna say it's irrelevant but it's not the first thing that i should be thinking about well to be honest it's not relevant to art criticism it, that's just personal opinion and it's subjective. Right. So art criticism should be objective. And I totally understand the separation. I'm being vague and 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 sort of brush broad strokey when I'm making my little aphorisms. But yes, it should be much more objective. But but I have a question within that because I think you're my literally like my first critical uh -huh. writer that I've ever had on the podcast. Okay. But so when you do any sort of review of an exhibition i'm always interested in whether or not the like what's what's the percentage of influence of the work itself versus text oh gosh yeah this is a big topic isn't it it's huge it's a huge yes. topic and it's something I, well i do portfolio reviews mm -hmm every day i look at thousands of i've done i think i'm at three thousand portfolio reviews in the past five years so i and i'm constantly having to give feedback on not only the work but the text and i am i believe that these days the text has more influence than it did in the past yes and yeah yes and 
I'm a horrible podcast guest because I'm not going to give you like a simple answer. Let me collect myself. Yes, take your time. <laughs> I could continue on my rant about text. And <laughs> I have. So here's what I think. So first of all, there, I, I think there's an idea that the artwork is supposed to only speak for itself. And that you shouldn't need to know anything about the artist. You shouldn't need to know anything about their research or their life or their interests or whatever. I will say that that's never been the case. I don't think. The difference is basically modernism and postmodernism. Because I think I haven't really fleshed this idea out. You heard it here first. But you know, in the past, like say Renaissance paintings or whatever, the subject matter was often easily recognizable, right? So you knew if you saw like Judith cutting off the head of Holofernes, you knew that story from the Bible, right? So you didn't need context because you had that cultural, historical, biblical context. When you saw pictures of, I don't know, the patrons of a painting holding a skull and it was, you know, everybody was like, yeah, well, the Black Death just happened. Like these paintings were easily, their context was easily recognizable to most, right? Or maybe just to the elite, because who cared about the plebes back then anyway, right? But Or it was done in the church anyways, which was literally just visual representations of the stories of the Bible. Right. Or there was like, oh, look, a giant painting of a really rich guy in his house. Like every, you, don't, you don't need a lot of context. But so now we lack a lot of that knowledge and that context. And so I think the text, rather than telling you what it's about, is just trying to provide some context for what you're about to see in this weird anonymous often white cube space right as a rabbit trail i have a huge beef with a lot of art speak because you do show up and you read a text and you're like what the fuck does that mean and for a long time like i said i thought it was just i was like a podunk hick from missouri and i just wasn't smart enough and now i feel very confident that I'm mostly smart enough and this just doesn't make any sense and it's just a lot of big words. So that's a that's a very important thing for me when when writing when I write about art and when I do an exhibition that you know that yes it needs to be conceptually strong. I don't want to oversimplify things and yet you have to use words that you you actually have to make sense. <laughs> I don't I mean that's my that's my threshold. Make sense. Yeah, I say like you have to make sense to a at least like uh, somebody who has a bachelor's degree, right. like so like you're not dumbing it down to like elementary school level no, or, or just like in English. I mean, I literally read sentences and I'm like, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. It's just like words strung together that are vaguely grammatically correct, but at the end, I have no idea. Like it was the mo it was like airy, you know. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it's really hard because, I mean, on the one hand, you can go too intellectual and arrogant and be like, oh, this is a Freudian, Kantian, philosophical, blah, 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 here's a Latin phrase bullshit. But on the other hand, you can also the, – the one that I find on the other end of the spectrum is often the poetic, like literally when they write a poem. Yeah, and you're like, thanks for that. Like, you've made conceptual abstract work, and then you have accompanied it with the context of a conceptual abstract poem right so like it, it gave you nothing that's kind of trendy right now too right i mean i don't know we'll it's fucking annoying we'll see how, that, how long that lasts but i do want to say you asked me like how much text versus artwork matters i mean if i'm going to write a review i put a lot of work into that so i'm not necessarily go i mean ideally i would go see an exhibition twice that happens less than i would like so if you, you get a first impression 
you scribble down all your first impressions, like what struck you, what didn't. And that's both about the artworks, the collection of artworks, if it's a group show and how they relate to one another and also the exhibition, right? The layout, the lighting, how it could be presented better. But then I do a lot of, of research. Like, of course I read all of the texts. If I can, I speak to the curator. Sometimes I get to speak with the artist. I do a, a lot of online research to figure out that's an artist that I'm not familiar with, like what their background is and what their, their research focus, like what drives their work basically. And I think that some people would say, well, that's not that, sh that shouldn't be necessary. But I think for a supposedly professional person who's giving an opinion about an exhibition. Objective opinion. I don't think it's objective. We'll get there in a second. But to give an opinion, you should do your work. You should do your research, right? And when you, what you just said about being objective, I think is really key because yes, supposedly you're supposed to be objective. But what I just like earlier is that no one is truly objective and that's crucial. And so for me, especially recently, I have been trying to, in a way that makes sense and isn't obnoxious, state like who I am and where I'm coming from and why this artwork does affect me in a certain way while at the same time recognizing it's not just like me, whether I like it or not, that matters. Ugh, how do I say this? Okay, so can I give you an example? No. No, okay, the end. Totally kidding, go ahead. I was given the opportunity to write a review for Textus of Kunst of this exhibition, Lean, at Kunsthaus-Sivanger, and it was a video exhibition. I, I, don't, I almost don't wanna talk about it because I feel like I'm gonna lessen it, but it was a, an exhibition of video works curated by Legacy Russell, all about like a queer black poetic. That was the phrase that she used. And I am neither queer nor black. And so I was like, I don't think that I'm the right person. Like, what am I going to write about? This is not my, like, I don't feel like I even have a right to have an opinion about this. And it was essential in that review for me to state, like, this is how I felt in this exhibition. This is what I think some of the artwork was saying, and yet this is also a message I got as an individual coming from my background. I've, I'm doing a very bad job explaining this, but I think being objective and doing your research and yet also balancing that with being very honest about who you are and what your background is, is essential. And I wish that we could see more of that in reviews. Well, it's basically like you're just offering the context right, like, for who you are that is interacting with this. Because if a queer black woman were to walk into that exhibition, they are going to relate to it in different ways than a heterosexual white man. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And but again, like this is when it, where it circles back to this idea of critical thinking rather than criticism in terms of like thumbs up or thumbs down, because that colored my perspective and my way that I was critically engaging with the exhibition. And it was, I could talk for a long time about this exhibition. It was, it's, it's really important. And it was a very important exhibition for me to write about. But, but yeah, if I, if I wrote about this exhibition and I didn't admit like who I am and where I'm coming from and why I'm affected in this way versus that way, especially for this exhibition, it would just be completely dishonest. So, so yeah, I don't know. Does that make you, you're squinting. Doesn't make sense. I'm thinking. I'm not sure dishonest is the right word for that. It still would be honest. It just it would just lack the context mm. of like, oh, the person who's writing this is coming to it from this background, this history, this whatever. So because 
a lot of the writers, like, I mean, I've read, you know, I've read a lot of different art criticism over the years and I'm always like, who the fuck is this person writing this thing? Like, you know, like I've read far too many super intellectual criticisms where they're like, again, like quoting like, oh, this is reminiscent of this obscure person from the Netherlands in the 1300s kind of thing. And it's just like, who the fuck knows this shit? Right. You know, but that person knows that. Yeah. But I actually, you know, I don't mind that. And I think that an intellectually rigorous review is great. And I always want there to be something in it that ties it to what, like, why does that matter? You know, that ties it to the real world. Yeah. That's one of my big things that I sort of harp on when I think about where any, when I like, when I'm making my own work is sort of the question of why, why has this artist made this and why should I, as a viewer, give a shit about it? Mm -hmm. And then why should a collector, a gallery, or an institution then say, oh, this is worth collecting or this is worth exhibiting in some, you know, reputable whatever kind of place? Like that question of why is a really difficult one. Uh, uh, me as a practicing artist, for me to be able to like take my work into a gallery and say, this is the reason why it's important seems like a bit of an arrogant part of the whole thing. Like my eye fit in the, the lexicon and the vernacular in this manner. Like that's not my place. Right. Like, but that's the curator's place. Like, so, like doing the criticism and doing the curatorial work. Like th we need you all to be able to put us in our place in the, the, the vernacular of our mediums, whatever they are that we cannot put ourselves in. Mm -hmm. So I love curators, just to be clear. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm blushing. But no, but no, it's true. I, I he hesitate to like pigeonhole, like artists should do this and curators should do that. But it is true. I mean, I think the job, one of the jobs of a curator is to be very present in the world, like live in this world, not just in academia, live in this world, feel what's happening. I feel like that was pointed towards me. No, 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 not at all. But, you know, you do get people that are in these ivory towers and they're not living in the world. And they're so, you know, art that references art that references art. But for a curator to be in the world, to understand what's going on, to be taking all of that in and then to be seeing artwork and thinking critically and, and, and basically connecting the dots between a lot of concepts and actors and, and institutions and things that are happening. Okay, I've got to ask though, because this is one of my little rants that I go on all too frequently, which is the, uh, how do you feel about the artists needing to write their own text versus having somebody else write it on their behalf? Would you mean like, they're, like an artist bio or like an exhibition text? Yes. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I don't, I've never met a person that likes an artist bio and I have very rarely read a good one. What constitutes a good one? Yeah, exactly. Because they're supposed to be like a paragraph usually or something and or a couple. And you're like, how how can you concentrate an entire creative practice into a couple lines? And usually they sound really arrogant and weird. I don't know. I I feel like, I feel like you look at the I'm not gonna answer your question. I don't know what constitutes a good one. My favorite ones are like so and so is an artist working with this and that and lives here, you know? And then I will read articles about like a lot of, I, I like it when a, an artist has a website that has links to uh, things that curators or, or critics have written about them rather than like a whole long thing about what they're doing. 
See, I think that the, well, okay, I think links, I think is perfectly appropriate. I really hate the bios where they quote curators oh. in the bio. It's just like, oh, seriously, yeah. come on. Yeah, I don't know. I, I say that because I did it at one point in my career and I now look back at it and I'm like, oh, that was oh, just embarrassing. I, can, I can't speak for everyone. I can only tell you what I like is to, obviously I'm looking at it at an artist because I like their work. And, be, and I generally, for the most part, form my own opinions about what's happening based on the exhibitions that I've seen or the history of their artwork. I look at their CV, I look at past shows, and then I read past reviews. And best case, I actually meet the artists and do interviews and really get to know what they're doing and what they're working on. But yeah, I mean, I know when you apply for whatever, or a grant or an exhibition, you've got to do an artist bio. It's, I don't know, I don't have a good solution for that. See, like, because I struggle with that because even when I write my own, I mean, I'm sure people have read mine because, of course, I do this podcast and I'm like, it's an embarrassment. No matter every time I write, I write it and I'm like, oh my God, that's magnificent. And I put it out there, or I, you submit to a grant or a residency for it. And then, like, six months later, I'm like, oh, that was so fucking bad. Why did I put that out yeah. there? That was horrible. Because you're trying to, as I said, concentrate your practice into a paragraph and then it becomes so vague I, I i read so many artist bios that are like so and so is an artist who works with form and color to talk about life and what i fucking hate those like they said nothing it, nothing. it literally it said nothing like every artist works with form and light and shadow and fuck all like seriously get over it we all do that like i I will, I often say like specificity is incredibly yeah, specificity important. of language. Like, I mean, like I'm to the point where like my, uh, my artist bio these days says like, yeah, I'm an ex drug addict. I used to work at Baskin and Robbins and like, you know, so I give a little bit of flavor of the kind of person I am mm -hmm. more so than necessarily my like studio practice of like oh i'm trying to achieve these this this universal connection of blah 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 bullshit like i don't think that's interesting mm -hmm. i think people people want to feel connected to the either the artist or through their life experiences or through their practice or through their investigations more so than they want to be like admired or respected or put on a pedestal like i don't think that that's where we are these days no. i think there was a time when that was very important but i feel like we've transcended that time one can hope i do think well now that i'm i have a horrible habit of thinking and talking at the same time if i am reading a bio what i find helpful is like who are you where do you live a couple of things that i actually have read that i like so when people say current research includes or is around because it means like this is what i'm working on right now in the past it maybe was different in the future it might change but that that allows a person to be very specific and you don't have to consolidate your entire like every interest you've ever had as an artist into one paragraph so you can say you know currently i'm working on this very specific topic or my artistic practice is influenced by right and you can and you can read you i know i see you hate it but it kind of oh. can help place it can help place an artistic practice in a lineage so if so, so if i read my artistic practice is influenced by postmodernist painting from germany i'm like oh that's not really what i'm that's not the exhibition i'm curating right now right it doesn't mean that it's good or bad i, I can just kind of be like maybe i'm not that's not for me or 
you're rolling your eyes. Should I stop? No, I'm thinking. Um, I stop reading my face. My, I make all kinds of stupid <laughs> like facial expressions. Yeah, totally irrelevant. No, the no. Well, because what I'm thinking about that is is like okay. I don't, oddly enough, I don't mind what you said, which is like, I'm influenced by, I forget what you said. So oh, I'll, I'll just make Germany, it, but I just made it up. Right. But, but that's better than what I often read, which is where people say I'm influenced by Solowit. Oh, sure. Like, no, no. Like when people quote exact people that were their influences, it totally turns me off. Mm, fair enough. Yeah. I think, but to place yourself in an art historical lineage or like a way of thinking. I think that that can be really informative in terms of someone, uh, in terms of a curator looking at your work, right? Well, this is one of those things. Okay. I have the, I do these stupid things in my mind. I, I, I'm embarrassed even to talk about this, but I'll do it anyways, which is that I wonder looking back over the course of my life. Okay. I was at the Corcoran at this particular time. I was at the San Francisco Art Institute at this particular time. Was there a movement that happened there that I will at some point in the future be put into the canon of a movement at that time period in San Francisco or at that mm -hmm. time period in Washington, D.C.? And I always wonder, like, when and how do those kinds of, like, things, those sort of oeuvres of different locations and times and schools and stuff sort of start to manifest themselves do i have to wait until i'm dead before like those start getting created or or do they happen while people are still alive yeah i think both or or never right both or never oh i hope something put me in somewhere <laughs> i think to hope that you're in, included in the canon is ambitious it's my life's goal mm. and i will never see it during my lifetime, I would assume. Mm -hmm. I will see it after my yeah, lifetime, well, I hope. If Van Gogh didn't do it, then I wouldn't hold your breath. But did he actually have the desire to be part of the, the canon in his oh, lifetime? I think so, sure. I mean, he definitely wanted okay. to sell his paintings and be a famous artist. This is a complete rabbit trail. There's a, a fantastic article that just came out in the New York Times. I think it was actually the New York Times Daily Podcast, and they were like reading it. They do this thing called the Sunday Read. And it was all about the woman Theo, Van, you know, Van Gogh's brother, his wife. So after both brothers died, she inherited all the paintings. And she's really the one that made him Van Gogh. And in effect, also sort of started, or at least hugely contributed to this whole idea of like, the crazy lone artist, you know, it's a genius with his paintings. And, and that was like, all very intentional and really smart. And, and so that's a whole topic. But you're getting into the whole topic that I'm fascinated by, which is like the estate planning that needs to go on with a, with any living artist mm -hmm. or or for that matter, dead artist, like the, about how the how they're put into whatever thing as part of the the uh, the continuation of their legacy kind mm -hmm. of thing. Like I'm utterly fat. Like I'm going to be here. Look, this is how arrogant I am with that. I had this lovely notebook mm -hmm. here. And nobody can see this, but I'm showing this to her in my notebook. And in this notebook, I every single page is a different person that I've interviewed for this podcast and all the notes that I took mm -hmm. that are sometimes are the same and sometimes are different. And, and I will keep this as part of my legacy so that people can research this after my death yeah. kind of thing. Like This is one of the things that like, I know a lot of artists that like they keep their artwork, but they don't keep anything else. Mm -hmm. And it's the everything else that gives the context for why they were important, how they were important, and the ability for scholars to be able to research their life and their ways of doing things after their death. Yeah, yeah, I agree. When I was working at ICI, 
in New York. ICI also has a like an arm that publishes books. And one of the book series that we published that I worked on was called the Source Book Series. And this is a little bit, maybe not exactly in terms of legacy, but in terms of saving for future research. So they would work with, we would work with an artist to publish, basically it was like a, an extended monograph. So obviously you have the monograph and you have the artwork and you have the essays about the artist, but then a large majority of the book was about the artist's influences. So it would be like texts that the artist read, photographs or artworks by other artists, or basically all of this stuff I'm making like a giant cloud over my head that the artist then distills that then becomes their artwork. And I really appreciate that because A, as like a record of that artist's work, but B, because it debunks the notion that this art happens in a vacuum. Like it, right? That it shows like, this is what, this is like all the information that the artist was taking in and then used to create their own work. So yeah, the way you were just talking about that, I was thinking, I was like, you know, what would be amazing is to like to contact a bunch of living artists and ask everybody to take one page out of either their sketchbook or their journal that somehow is meaningful to them and then put together a book of just like the single most sort of influential or, or somehow influ uh, important days or sketches or something that they did in their mm -hmm. lifetime as a book. That could be interesting. It could be interesting. My next research mm -hmm. thing when I get back to full-time academia. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know where we are. We've like rabbit trailed. So this is what I do. This is what we do. This is how it goes. Yeah. Um, well, is there any topics that you would like to talk about that I have not brought up with you? Oh gosh. I, I guess I should say that after Norway, I moved, uh, as I mentioned, I moved to Sweden and I'm now, I took a bit of a break. I had two children. Women working in the arts with small children is a jungle gym. You tell. Yeah. Oh, just parenting in a pandemic with two infants and toddlers and trying to maintain a career as a woman. I'm sure it's the same in any field, but in the arts, it's, it's difficult. Wait, why is it a woman thing? What about men? Do you, oh, now we're going to get into it. Do you think that women and men share equal, do you have children? Not yet. Yeah. The fact I would say that be angry at me if you please women and men do not share an equal burden in terms of, of child rearing and housework. And that's just a fact. And it's a biological fact for the most part, right? And so, I mean, just look at, read any article you want to about the pandemic in terms of how it's affected women versus men, like where the weight. I believe I have intentionally avoided those articles, Yeah, but go on. I have a fantastic spouse. And so that's not at all to say that, you know, that I'm persecuted or anything, but it especially with young children, it just often is that the mother carries a lot more of the weight. Yeah, my wife and I have already had these discussions, and the honest truth is, I'm going to be the um, stay-at-home father mm -hmm. more so than she will, because she has a full-time nine-to-five job mm -hmm. that she will go back to after having our kid, and I will stay at home and raise the child. Yeah. So I look forward to it. Yeah, and as does my husband. But I will say, well, now this is getting really personal. But I would be very curious. I don't know when you're if when you're planning to have a child. About a year from now. Yeah. So if that, I would be very curious. Start the process of having yeah. a child. So year. then I would so be very curious. Year, to, I would be months. very curious to talk to you like three years from now, and see how that goes because that was my plan as well. And the simple biological fact is often that the baby wants the mother, like that's just how it works. De doesn't have to, 
but more often than not, that's what in, like these gender roles in, end up happening, and you didn't plan for that. And so, okay, wait, just as a question, your your spouse is your spouse Swedish? He's Swedish, yeah. Which is why we moved okay. here. Yeah, well, because like my wife is Czech, and there's this amazing thing here in the Czech Republic where any woman who has a child gets three years that's maternity insane. leave. We I got a year, and he got about six months. Three years paid by the government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, there's so there's so much more that goes into it, right? In terms of like the sleeplessness and the your brain isn't your own for a while. Like it's it's really complicated, and I don't think we have time, nor am I prepared to really <laughs> go into this on this podcast. But I will say that I am back at work now since last October, and I work as the curator at the Sigtuna Museum and Art in Sigtuna, which is just outside of Stockholm, and I don't know if we really need to discuss it, but I just wanted to mention that now I'm working with exhibitions in a very specific context and I'm working with a lot of public art projects, which is actually new for me and a whole complicated topic. The context of working in art in where I am right now is so different. It's sort of a vague word, but in terms of the structures and the processes and the funding, because we are, I mean, I mean, I'm attached to a museum that has a huge historical and cultural heritage component, which is fascinating to me. And it's, I've never been able to work within that context before, like working with contemporary art while being tied to a historical museum is really interesting. But then also working basically within the structure of a municipality. So trying to function in the way that contemporary art functions, but being forced to still function within this other way of working, which is within a municipal government, is very, very different for me. So Slightly contradictory in many ways. <laughs> at, at times. I'm really lucky right now I'm working at an old sim, sim hall, an abandoned swimming hall, like an indoor swimming pool that, we've, that we are slowly in the process of changing into a contemporary art gallery within this very specific community setting in this place called Valsta. So that's exciting to me to try and like work with a high level of contemporary art, but also in a very specific context that's not just an international museum, that's sort of anonymous in some ways. So that's something that I'm thinking a lot about, like how to straddle both those lines, be really conceptually rigorous while being really approachable to all manner of people. What? That's contradictory in terms as far as I know. <laughs> Very often, but I don't think it has to be. I really, as I mentioned at the very beginning, hope springs eternal. So that's one of my goals, always. It's a difficult balance to ride. For sure, yeah. I do have a final question that I'd like to ask, okay. which is, uh, do you have any advice for the next generation? I prefer to go with advice of like things that you feel like you learned through experiences, but we're not taught them kind right. of thing. I was, like, so I was just you... gonna say like, tape the windows is a fucking hurricane advice i'm sorry what? tape the windows i was just like advice for the future tape the windows don't you know that phrase like before mm -hmm. a storm you tape the windows so if the glass shatters you just put uh, plywood over it aha uh -huh. okay well in missouri in tornado alley you often tape the windows okay but you said hurricane yeah well i, I don't know i was just freestyling advice or something that i learned that i wasn't taught yeah, like basically like uh, something from your life experiences in the art world that you wish you knew mm -hmm. before you had to go through it yourself. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's tricky, right? Because the world is always changing. 
So what was true for me might not be true for someone else. Well, and what was true 10 years ago is not true anymore right, exactly. because of social media and all that shit. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think this is probably not what you're going for, but I think, you know, the janitor is the most important person in the building. I have said that for years. Yeah, I mean, it's true. And, and by that, I mean, A, that the janitor is literally the most important person in the building. And B, that so much depends on how you treat other people. And you can say, like, my work is fantastic. But it's like, yeah, if you're an asshole, no one is going to want to work with you. It doesn't matter how good your artwork is. And that's the truth. I mean, from experience, I have been like, I am not going to work with that artist because they're way, way, way too difficult. And they're just mean and nobody wants to have an exhibition with them. And, you know, you can think that that's unprofessional, but that's just the truth. So basically, like, keep your nose clean. Treat everybody that you meet well, because you never know who that person is. Well, a, because you should, because it's a good thing to do as a human. And then B, you never know who that person is, if they're ever going to be able to help you, if they're going to say something good about you five years down the road to somebody else. Yeah, that's what I would say. It's excellent. My my parents, my dad or my parents, I don't know who said it, they used to say things like always befriend the help, Yeah, basically, because you're not above them. Yeah, no. You're not. And as so again, when it comes to And they're not below you. So right. Just go both ways on and that. And as someone who's worked as a waitress for a long time, like I, you know, I feel that. So Oh yeah. yeah. I was a roadie for years and every time I went somewhere, you always befriend the door people, you always befriend the the the, the janitors, the whoever, because they're all trying to do their yeah. jobs. And they've like, also got as the best, best stories. And if you need help, like the janitor's got the key to let you in after hours because you forgot your cell phone or whatever, you know, it's always, so that's all, that's all I got. It's fabulous. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Try to make me sound smart. (laughs) You know, I'm going to leave that in. (laughs) Probably. It's accurate. It's fine. Mingo Hope O'Donnell, who you spoke with, she did some fantastic performance-based public art projects for Monk on the Move. And public art agency Sweden spends a significant amount of money and effort putting up some some permanent and some temporary public projects. And I think that that is a practice that needs a lot more attention because sometimes public artworks are not something that somebody needs to live with forever and yet can still be really powerful but maybe they only need to be there for a certain amount of time, maybe a day, maybe a year. I used to run a public arts program that we intentionally sort of formatted it in that manner where we, the exhibition only lasted six months. Right. And so every, every, so basically we created concrete bases that stayed consistent. And every six months we would put new work on those same bases in those same locations. Cause part of it was like as part of the role of public art. I see as, educational because you know like there are the people who go to art museums they obviously have an interest in it but the people who experience public art are people who oftentimes don't go to museums Mm -hmm. and so it's art being placed into their daily lives i.e public art and so therefore it helps to entice those people to think a little bit more you know like I, i intentionally like i was in a a historic North Carolina city. And I intentionally put very contemporary, you know, geometric stuff just to, to be contrasting. And, and the one thing that we learned the most from that was that, that they don't want that 
in that city. So great, they learned something. So their their tastes are evolving and their knowledge of what they appreciate versus don't appreciate is becoming clearer because of those experiences. Right. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, permanent public artworks can be really invasive. And on the one hand, I do think, no, I mean, I do think that art should not just be pleasant. And I think that's another problem with public artworks is we have these artworks that have been committed to death to make sure that nobody's offended. And then they just kind of lose all meaning, right? They're just like a decorative object. And then on the other hand, if you're going to put something really controversial, maybe even something really important, but you're going to make people live with that piece for potentially ever, as we were just talking about bronze pieces earlier, I think this is a really fine line and something that needs something that needs a lot more research. Well, but even controversial work, it's controversial in its initial installation, but like as it's there for five, 10, 20 years, it's less controversial. Like the controversy is the newness of something. No. I mean, think about all of the the Civil War era sculptures that are being torn down. Oh well that's a yeah, that's a different issue. But I mean in me terms of time, right? Like the quality think, of the art though. Sure. But I mean that's what I'm saying though. I think so much changes, time changes, people changes, neighborhoods change. And we are often, at least in the West, like obsessed with this idea of longevity of like I don't know, I think it's just a lot of posturing, to be quite honest. Okay, the longevity thing, I will give it, that is a male thing, okay? Men like this, this is what we want to do. We want to buy a sofa in our home, and we buy one sofa, and it's the perfect sofa, so that I never have to think about buying a sofa again. So putting a sculpture in public is buying a sculpture, putting it in public, and I never have to think about it again. It's done. Possibly. I think it's slightly more complex than that, but I do... I mean, you know, in Sweden, there are these like percent laws that a lot of different municipalities have. So in Sigtuna, it's 0.5, in Stockholm, it's 1%. And in theory, that's a really good idea, right? A certain specific amount, percentage amount of any new building project or renovation project goes towards public art. And yet what ends up happening is you get a lot of not very exciting in the best case. No, not in the best case, but sometimes you get not very exciting public artworks that are just there forever and just because they have to fulfill this checkbox. Whereas I think that money could be used for like a really fascinating one day performance artwork or ephemeral work. And that's what public art agency Sweden is doing in a really fantastic way. Well, just as a question, I mean, okay, I love the the percent for the art programs across Mm -hmm. the board, wherever they are in the world, they're fabulous. Can they be used for ephemeral things versus long-term things generally not it depends it it really depends on the municipality i mean i don't think that there's anything in the contract that says that it has to be there forever and ever but i do think that the way that municipal politicians and you know city planners and people who are in charge of budgets the way that they think about art will really need to change well, the way they think about art is it should be bronze because it's got good longevity. Right, it should be a bronze sculpture. I did. I wrote an article. I'm gonna like plug myself for a second here, but just because I think I write far more succinctly than I speak, I wrote an article for CAS for Contemporary Art Stavanger called "Forever and Ever," which is about this topic about permanence in public artworks. So, if anyone is interested, I probably sound a lot smarter in that article. And I, for example, compared two very similar artworks by Anthony Gormley in Stavanger. And one of them was temporary and one of them is permanent. So anyway, 
read, discuss. The end. I hope you are learning as much from this podcast as I am. I've learned so many things that I've done wrong in my career and many things that I need to put more effort into moving forward. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in being more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would also like to thank Todd FF for their five-star rating. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio is edited by Jakob Czerny, and the music was created by my childhood friend, Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes, or you can find more information on Instagram at the wise fool pod or simply on our website wisefoolpod.com. Mm-hmm.